Hello and welcome to Snow Country Stories Japan. My name is Peter Carnell, a freelance writer and guide based in Nagano, and this is a podcast about life in Japan's legendary Yukiguni, as told by the people carving out lives here. In today's episode, I speak with Kevin Kato. Based in the town of Matsumoto in Nagano, Kevin is a guide and writer who I've known for a few years now. As guides, our paths cross over, and while I wouldn't say that I knew Kevin well, I knew him well enough to know that he's a good guide and has stories to tell. In preparation for the interview, Kevin mentioned his writing, including several published books, of which one stood out to me, but more about that in a moment. The interview starts with us chatting about some of the ins and outs of guiding. As a guide myself, I enjoy hearing what motivates other guides and how they go about connecting their guests to the places they are visiting. And following on from my chat with Moto the Mountain Guide in episode 5, I have every intention to speak with more guides in future. Though I'm not a cyclist myself, I see Japan as a tremendous country for cycling, with more and more operators offering cycling tours of entire regions of Japan, including here among the mountains of the snow country. We talk about all of that and more in the first half of the interview. Kevin has lived in Japan for many years now. As of 2011, he was living in Fukushima City, the largest city in Fukushima Prefecture. Part of the Tohoku region, Fukushima is located to the north of Tokyo along the Pacific coast. On March 11, 2011, what is now referred to as the Great Tohoku Earthquake or Great East Japan Earthquake occurred around 70 kilometers off the coast of Sendai Prefecture, just to the north of Fukushima. Measuring 9 to 9.1, it was the fourth largest earthquake ever recorded, a megathrust earthquake during which one tectonic plate is forced beneath another, an event that moved Japan's main island of Honshu 2.4 meters to the east. The quake lasted an astounding six minutes and triggered a tsunami which, at its highest point, is estimated to have been up to 40 meters, over 130 feet in height. Thankfully, Japan's early warning systems worked. Warning millions of the imminent earthquake and approaching tsunami. These systems saved countless lives, however, not everyone had the time to move to safety. When the wave struck, it traveled up to 10 kilometers, 6 miles inland, devastating coastal areas. In the aftermath of these events, it is unknown how many people died, however, it's estimated to be around 20,000, with more than 2,000 still unaccounted for. An estimated 120,000 buildings were destroyed. With another 1 million buildings partially destroyed. Located on the coast, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant was struck by waves measuring up to 14 meters in height, waves that easily breached its 7 meter seawall. Over the following three days, from the March 12th to 15th, three nuclear meltdowns, three hydrogen explosions, and a release of radioactive contaminants all occurred. In the confusion and uncertainty of the days following the earthquake and tsunami, The ongoing situation at the Fukushima power plant became the most pressing concern for many people in Japan. Kevin and his family were left with the daunting decision of what to do, where to go, and how to get there in the absence of reliable information, inactive transport systems, increasing fear, and huge uncertainty. They decided to leave, a decision that would eventually bring them to settle in the snow country of Nagano, since which time he has been guiding, cycling, Running and pursuing his love of the outdoors. Kevin wrote a book titled For Now, After the Quake, A Father's Journey, 
about the aftermath of the quake and getting his family out of Fukushima, and he was good enough to share his story and some recollections of that time in the second half of the interview. It's a conversation that I think touches on the essence of Japan and its people. People whom I greatly respect for their resilience and gaman spirit. Originating out of Buddhist traditions, gaman means to endure the seemingly unbearable and to do so with patience, dignity, and humility. It's both an admirable trait and perhaps an essential one for people of the world's most seismically active country. It is my observation that understanding this aspect of the Japanese psyche is essential to knowing the country and its people, and that by telling his story, Kevin is again connecting his audience to a sense of what Japan is all about. The interview was conducted in Kevin's home, so from time to time you'll hear a little background noise of life with three kids. But given the conversation, I feel that being surrounded by his family and the general noise of home life on the weekend was appropriate. I also start out the interview by offering Kevin what at the time I thought was a compliment, but listening back to it was a bit of an insult, a textbook backhanded compliment, something that Australians have down to a bit of an art form. So apologies, Kevin. I'll go away and have a good long hard look at myself. I hope you enjoy. My guest on the podcast today is Kevin Kato, another guide here based in Matsumoto in Nagano. Uh, Kevin, let me start the interview by saying I've always really actually liked your name. This is going to be the second episode <laughs> in a row that I've comp- started the uh, interview with by complimenting the guest on their name because Kevin, let's face it, he's probably not regarded as the world's coolest name. It's but- not? Sorry, I had to break that to you. <laughs> uh, you're the first person who've ever said that to me. <laughs> but Kevin Kato um, is a cool name. I'm broken. <laughs> uh, but Kato, uh, well, my my real last name is Smith. Ah, so okay. you can't get mm. much more <laughs> generic and nondescript than that. So mm, Very middle of the road. Yeah, very boring. Uh, so when I started, uh, when I decided I wanted to be a writer, and mm. these great aspirations and... Mm. This was early on in the dawn of the internet age, and mm. I figured, well, there are going to be about a million Kevin Smiths out there. Mm. I need to, you know, differentiate myself. Yep. So I need a different name. Mm. Kato is my wife's maiden name. Mm. So I just assumed that, and that has brought on all manner of unintended uh, <laughs> problems and issues. So having a pen name has been a... A bit of a an interesting adventure. So important to make that point that you're not just a guy; you are also a writer. And we're speaking today in your home in Matsumoto in Nagano. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with where Matsumoto is, is uh, Kevin, could you just explain where is Matsumoto in relation to Nagano itself and Tokyo? Okay. Uh, well, when I first moved here, someone explained to me that Matsumoto is the belly button of Japan. Uh, and really is, uh, if you look at a map of Japan, it's in the middle of where Japan bends around. Um, it's west, northwest of Tokyo, uh, very accessible. But the cool thing about Matsumoto is when you travel from Tokyo up to Matsumoto, you pass, not right next to it, but you pass Mount Fuji, Mm. and then you pass by the Southern Alps, and then you pass another mountain range called Yatsugadake. You skirt the Central Alps, and then you come up to the Northern Alps. So you're from this 
in this three-hour train ride from Tokyo to Matsumoto, mm. you're passing these amazing mountain ranges. I've never used that train myself. Can you see Fuji from that train line? Uh, you can. Mm. You can. As you go through uh, Kofu in mm. Yamanashi, uh, you c- you kind of have to look back and you don't get a full, clear view of Mount yeah, Fuji. You want to sit the on the top half. You want to sit on the left, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when... Uh, when I'm guiding, I don't tell people because uh, they'll be all they'll all be fighting over which seats yeah. uh, they get to sit in. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, so Matsumoto is in the middle of you know some of the highest uh, mountain ranges in Japan, the highest mountain ranges mm. in Japan, right? Yep. Uh, Matsumoto itself is not a real big town. Well, we say big town, small city. Yeah. Somewhere in between town and city, right? Yeah. Uh, a real good size for a guy like me. How long have you lived here? Uh, in Japan. I've been in Japan coming up on like, oh shoot, 19 years. Mm. And I moved to Matsumoto almost nine years ago. Nine years. Yeah. And where is home originally? Obviously from the States, which part of America? Yeah. Northern New Jersey. Ah. Directly west from Manhattan. <laughs> uh, grew up in a place, uh, close to New York City, but Looks nothing like New York City. Very suburban, uh, green, quiet sort of place that is extreme, can be extremely boring <laughs> when you're growing up, but as a parent is much more attractive. Yeah. Funny yeah. how things change. Eh? Yeah. Perspective changes quite a bit when you have kids. Yeah. Have I told you this before? I, as a guide, uh, obviously I guide a lot of American guests around. And whenever I get guests from all over, America. And whenever I guess American guests, they always like to ask the question as to which American guests are the most difficult. And they always guess themselves that New Jersey are the people who would be the most difficult. And I haven't found that at all, actually, that people from New Jersey, New Jersey I can say quite honestly, have always been very nice. I'm wondering why, though. Why do people have this yeah, reputation? No, New Jersey gets a bad rap. I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> you know, I, I've never thought about which which area of the states produces the most incorrigible and <laughs> non-desirable non uh, guests when it comes to tourism. Uh, I, I have no idea about that. Uh, so, Kevin, when someone asks you, you know, what do you do for a living here in Matsumoto, what's your answer? For a while, uh, I was teaching English mm. and doing some writing. I mean, who, who doesn't do one or both of them? Yeah, right. right. At some stage. <laughs> in, yeah. Across the expat community in Japan, right? But uh, recently, uh, I've gotten mostly away from both of those. Mm. Um, I, do, I still do some writing, mm-hmm. uh, but it's more of my own. Uh, for a while, I was doing like other people's mm. writing. And now I'm doing more of my own writing. Uh, and guiding circumstances are such now that I can turn to guiding and pursue guiding as my main thing. You can't see me smiling, but I'm smiling because yeah. it's just something that I really love. Yeah. It really feeds me. It, it's one of those jobs that becomes part of your identity. I think that I've been guiding now for six years Yeah, and I, I, I love to, I love the role. Um, I love being able to take guests and help enhance their experience of Japan and give them a perspective that maybe they wouldn't have had themselves. And I think it really feeds it feeds from your interests and what motivates you as a person. If you're going to do it well, you need to be invested in what you're talking about. Would you agree with that in terms of it kind of becomes a part of you as a person? Well, I think it, 
it works out best if it is a part mm. of, of who you are. Um, you know, like yourself, I, I've had wanderlust forever. And mm. I, I love changing my surroundings, changing my scenery. Mm. I love getting out and about. I hate sitting at home. That's why I don't write so much anymore because as a, as a writer, it's funny. I, I finally, you know, was, was doing a lot of stuff uh, in the writing. And I found myself day after day sitting in my computer, looking outside, seeing a beautiful day, <laughs> seeing the mountains out there. I said, I don't want to be a writer. I want to be outside. Mm. So uh, so guiding really fe- feeds that part of me that wants to be outside. Yeah. Uh, the part of me that loves to go see places. Uh, the part of me that likes to get into places, not just look at them, but really get into them. I don't, I don't want to know the whole history of a place. And to be honest... Most people don't either. Uh, but to to get something interesting from a place that, mm. that can remind you what this place is about, whether it be a shrine or uh, a little village, whatever, mm. wherever you are, uh, something about that place that gives it significance and can give you a sense of why this place is here, why it's important. What I talked about in uh, previous roles where I have uh, part of those roles have involved me training and supporting guides. Uh, in doing that, what I always spoke to guides about was trying to create anchors in, uh, in your storytelling that the, it allows that the guests to emotionally connect to the place that they're in. And so I think it, that takes a bit of skill and time to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. But that's about you know identifying the spots of the story that they can relate to, even if they're from another country and don't know the history of the place and then maybe they don't know that much about Japanese culture. But whatever you're identifying in that story allows them to find some emotional anchor connection to the place they're in. So I think we're talking about the, the same thing there. I like that, that word anchor. I think it really explains well uh, the, the essence of of guiding, uh, from your, and my point of view, because when I go to a place, I want to be able to tell a story when you are able to convey, uh, a sense of this is what this town is about Mm. because of these places and how the city's laid out and how these buildings are still preserved in this way. People really get a sense of, Mm. all right, now I understand sense of place. place. Yeah. I understand this place. I, I, I know how this place came to be mm. and people kind of want to stick around a little longer mm. once they know that. Yeah. Nicely said. Yeah. So I, I like when I'm able to, to tell a story about a place, not just yeah. show a few sites. So obviously you, you guide here in Matsumoto, which other yeah. areas or regions of Japan do you guide in? Uh, well, um, with the walking tours, city to city tours, uh, mostly the, the common, uh, places between Tokyo and Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like going up to, you know, after Matsumoto, going through the Kiso Valley. Uh, beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah. Uh, it's a very popular hike, mm. but it's popular for a reason, mm. right? Uh, Tsumago to Mago, or Magome to Tsumago. Uh, you could tell a story there as well. Mm. It's a, it's one part of a larger story. Uh, going over to Takayama, mm. Kanazawa. Uh, Matsumoto is kind of cool because you can get up here from Tokyo in a few hours and then get back to, you can, you can wake up in Matsumoto, go hike Kiso and make it to Kyoto in the evening. Yeah. Right. Mm. You know, so Matsumoto is really not that far out of the way, which is ideal Mm. for anyone wanting, you know, when they're thinking of, all right, 
I want to go to Matsumoto, but what do I do from there? Mm, yeah. There are plenty of options. Yeah, and two of those options are worth noting because nobody, well, Matsumoto receives snow. Nobody would really describe it as part of the snow country. Mm. However, it's the gateway to some very big destinations in the snow country, including the North Alps, which are about what, an hour and a half to our west drive. Oh, gosh. Uh, you can get to a couple of really good trailheads in an hour. In an hour. There yeah. you go. So really close. And Huckaba, which is the very famous ski resorts, are about an hour and a half to our north. Yeah, a little further up. Yeah. A little bit further, yeah. So as I said, well, Matsumoto itself isn't really kind of snow country. It mm. puts you within a stone's throw of some of the bigger destinations there. Are those destinations that you guide in, Kevin? Like you, do you take your guests up into the, up into the mountains of the Alps? Uh, no, I haven't really done any mountain mm. guiding. I'm not qualified <laughs> <laughs> because it's a big responsibility. As oh, you for know. sure. You yeah. know, you, you can't just say, okay, let's climb this mountain because, mm. you know, something, something happens. Something t- twists an ankle mm. and that can cause big problems yep. as far as getting back down the mountain safely mm. and before dark mm. or before snow or whatever is going to happen. Uh, so I've not really done any guiding outside of maybe a little bit in Kamikochi because mm. you go up to Kamikochi yep. and it's a flat simple hike and very easy beautiful and simple and fantastic. Mm. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm happy to, to take people up to Kamikochi. Uh, but the mountains, uh, I do that on my own. Right. But yeah. cycling tours, you do lead cycling tours. Yeah. Yeah, uh, talk to me about that. Fortunate enough, is really random how it happened. I, I just happened to be down in the Izu Peninsula mm-hmm. uh, near the town of Shimoda, mm-hmm. which has a strong history. I was down in this area, <laughs> and I happened to be reading this magazine, flipping through this, uh, you know, local uh, magazine, and I saw an article uh, revolving around this guy from the area who had a cycling tour mm. operation. And I thought to myself, wow, mm. I can get paid to ride a bicycle, <laughs> <laughs> which is basically my thought. And uh, I, I emailed the guy. He got back to me. We went back and forth a couple of times. And he said, okay, well, uh, we have a tour up on the Noto Peninsula. Can you help out? Another beautiful area. <sighs> yeah. Man. A little undiscovered gem, actually, the Noto, I think. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. Some of the some of the most fantastic coastline I've seen in all of Japan. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So I've uh I've cycled uh as a guide with him uh, on several occasions, uh with more to come. Mm. Actually, uh next week mm. I, have, I have another one down in Kyushu. Mm. So I've been very fortunate. I'm not a cyclist myself. Um, I literally know how to ride a bike. I can I can achieve Good that. <laughs> yeah. But I wouldn't. I never describe myself as a cyclist. But I see Japan as a really fantastic country for cycling. Would you Would you agree with it? Oh yeah. Since I showed up in 2001, I've seen a lot of improvements in cycling in Japan. And I mean that in two ways. One. I've noticed more like cycling lanes and more postings uh, for cyclists. Uh, but I've seen more, um, just more, more of a, a trend, uh, an active interest in cycling in Japan. Yeah. Uh, I saw very few cyclists when I first came here. I brought my road bike over here and cycled around. That's how I, that's how I spent my weekends. Mm. I'd strap my tent to my back uh, rack, mm. put on a, backpack and go off for the weekend. Uh, but now, 
there's cycling. There are cycling operations all over the place. There are new cycling routes popping up all over the place. Uh, it's really, really come along. And there's really, really so much opportunity and so many possibilities mm. to just get away, go get lost yeah. and cycle around and find yourself in a little fishing village, yeah. or a little farming town that you otherwise would probably never see. You'd never find it. Very good road system, generally very courteous drivers. Yeah. And the good thing is, like you say, you, you arrive in these little towns, little villages that would rarely see a foreigner and you're probably going to get a very good reaction. They're going to be very happy that you're there. Yeah. You're going to get invited in somewhere. And yeah, you will. It's a great experience. You might. Yeah. You might. Um, some of my greatest experiences with you know, connecting with Japanese people have been on the bike. Uh, you introduced me to a, I think it's a, a newly developed route here in Nagano. Oh, yeah. The Japan Alps Cycling Road. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that route as to where it is um, and how much of it you've cycled? All right. Uh, it's 750 kilometers. It's a 750 kilometer loop. Goes basically, tries to follow the the outline of Nagano Prefecture. Um you can, it, it's broken up into sections, but really you can just start, finish, do as much or as little as you want. Uh, so it's set up just as like a, a, a general guideline. Uh, there's no start and finish. Uh, I've ridden, I've, I've ridden all over the place. Mm. Um, and I only found out about this last year. So I haven't gotten out to ride like a specific stretch of this loop. Yeah. Uh, like following their prescribed route, but I've been out cycling all over the place and I have ridden roads that coincide mm. with, with this mm. route that they've laid out now. Uh, I'd love to do it. Yeah. I'd love to do it. Uh, and it does, it does take you over some pretty high mountains, not over the highest. Yep. Uh, because once you go over the highest mountains, you're not in Nagano anymore. Yeah. No. You're, gonna, <laughs> you're somewhere completely different. Uh, but yeah, it looks killer. For someone who's interested to come and come to Japan and cycle themselves or join a cycling tour, which month of the year would you recommend? Which are the best? Which what would I recommend? M- months of the year, like in terms, oh, okay. of, in terms of conditions, weather. You got me with your Australian accent there. Which word? Which, which word? <laughs> <was the problem? laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, Not the first. Shoot. Yeah. Spring is my favorite season. Yeah. Spring is unbeatable here. So we're talking April, May? April, May, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, even into June. Uh, yeah, it starts getting warm. And June can be a little bit wet as well. Yeah, yeah. At some in. point in June, you're going to find the rainy season starts. Yeah. Uh, and that's what turns off most people in general across, you know, mm. the, so much, uh, tourism happens in spring and fall. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in the summertime can be pretty hot, but if, if you're going to be in Japan, you know, either head to the far North or come to Nagano. Yep. Yeah. So if someone was interested, Kevin, in booking a cycling tour with you, how do they get in touch? All right. Uh, I, I work with this, uh, cycling tour company, uh, now and again, uh, so it's not my company, but great operation. I always enjoy, enjoy working with them. Uh, the company simply is Cycling Japan. So the website is cyclingjapan.jp. Mm-hmm. Cycling Japan, one word, dot jp. Uh, but it's all in English. So very accessible. 
Fantastic. Yeah, and they got tours uh, all over the country all uh, throughout the year. Okay. So I'll make sure in the show notes for today's episode, I'll include the link to their website. And so feel free to get in touch. And if you're specifically after Kevin with that company, make sure you drop that in the message to them. Yeah, give me some props. Welcome back. I'm speaking today with Kevin Kato, a guide based in Matsumoto, Nagano. Uh, Kevin, you are someone who has made a conscious decision to not live in the cities in Japan and move out to the more regional areas such as this. But your story is perhaps more compelling than many others. As you were living in Fukushima City on March 11th, 2011, Mm. when the very large earthquake struck, often referred to as the Great Tohoku Earthquake, the earthquake that triggered the tsunami uh, that devastated the coast of Japan. You went on to write a book about uh, the earthquake and the aftermath of the earthquake and getting your family out of Fukushima called For Now, After the Quaker Father's Journey. And so if you're comfortable today to talk about that event and what led you to come here to Nagano, I'd like to jump into that aspect of your story. Is that something that you're happy to discuss? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I haven't talked about it in a while and it seems like it's, well, it was years ago. Mm. It was years ago, but uh, I'd love to get into it because it reminds me mm. of something that's very important. So can we begin with this, your recollections of that day and the earthquake itself? On that day, uh, I was with my three-year-old son at his little preschool, his hoikuen. Uh, and my, cause my, my second son, who was just 11 months old, he was uh, home with a fever with his mom. I was with my son at his preschool and everyone, all the other kids, there were about a dozen other kids and they were all with their mom. So I was the only guy there. Uh, but we were up on the second floor of this preschool and I was just reaching for a paper cup of tea. We were taking a break and I was holding my son. I was reaching for this tea and I remember like just a fraction of a second of something moving very slightly. And then all of a sudden, and this is how, never mind the strength of this earthquake, but how it started was was completely different from what I had ever experienced before because I had been in Japan uh, almost ten, almost exactly ten years at this point. I'd experienced plenty of earthquakes, and they they were always basically the same thing. You start with a, a back and forth shake, and sometimes it grows a little stronger, and then it fades away. And I, I'd always enjoyed them, actually. To be honest, I always just to think about what's happening. You make that comment in your book, actually. I think it's very early on, maybe even on the first page, you you make a comment that you always liked earthquakes. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing to think what's happening Mm. with an earthquake. The entire Mm. world, this part of the world, the entire thing is shaking, it's moving. Mm. But this was different. Uh, After that very quick initial tremor, something just a little bit of movement. And all of a sudden it felt like the entire building we were in 
didn't start shaking back and forth. It felt like it had actually lifted up vertically off the ground and boom, slammed back down again. And then everything started shaking back and forth. So right away, uh, beyond the shock of like, holy smokes, I've never experienced that before. Now it's just this incredibly strong, incredibly uh, violent shaking back and forth and very fast. And right away, I I thought to myself, okay, this is not like any other. And I was holding my son. And again, it lasted what I felt like was minutes, Mm. many minutes. And if you sit, you sit quietly for one minute, you realize how long a minute is. Now, if you sit in in a shaking building for one minute, it's a really long time. Mm. Uh, So that's what I was doing. I was holding my kid and all the mothers around me were holding their kids. And as it, went on it just wouldn't stop and the mothers were freaking out kids were crying and i just kept saying to myself please stop please stop please stop Mm. because it got to the point where i didn't know yes it was going to stop but when when is it going to stop and when ceiling tiles started falling from the ceiling when um there's this big fish tank on a wrought iron uh, stand fell over shattered there's water everywhere uh and my son is in my arms. He's laughing. He's getting a kick out of all this. He thought it was the funniest thing. Uh, but again, I was just like, when is it going to stop? When is it going to stop? And finally it stopped. How soon after the earthquake had ended, could you make contact with your, your wife, your other son? My, my wife got through to me. This was back in the age of flip phones mm-hmm. and just, you know, two color texts, texts, two color messages. Uh, so, She had sent me three or four messages that I received, but I tried to reply and my messages weren't getting back to her. Mm. Uh, So that was a little disconcerting, but I knew she was okay. Were you aware of that time of the tsunami? No, Mm. no. Uh, It's interesting, you know, all the power went out in in the entire area. So we had no form of communication. I mean, with the cell phones even, it was spotty, obviously. Uh, but you know, TV and whatever internet was out. So the, the rest of the world knew Mm. that there was this massive Mm. tsunami. We didn't know. So my family, you know, in, in the States, they see that there's this massive earthquake in Fukushima and massive tsunami. And, uh, I think this was the point where I realized that they didn't really have much of an idea where I lived. (laughs) They didn't know if I was next to the coast or not. They didn't know what was going on, but basically they couldn't get in in touch with me. Mm. There was no way to get through. So again, not knowing what's going on, that's, that's the most disconcerting feeling. Mm. Um, So no, we didn't, we had no idea until the next day when we finally got some power back and we got images through the TV of what had happened. Another thing that really struck me with your book was that you spent the first two nights, was it, at a local gymnasium? Uh, yeah, like a community center type place. Yeah. So structurally, yeah, with, your, your house was okay, but you with the gym, yeah. Yeah, you chose to. You had no services. Water was out. Power was out. Right. So you went to the gym, and you said there were a few hundred people in that gym, mm-hmm. and the way that you recall was just the way everybody was taking enough space just for themselves, 
um, and just enough food for themselves that was being handed out. And you were there offering people extra futons that you brought, but nobody would take them. And I thought right. it really encapsulated Japan and the way that you focused on that. I oh, thought, I it was mean, really insightful. For all my years in Japan, I don't, I know that there's no time that I've experienced more clearly, more succinctly, and quite honestly, more beautifully. Mm. Uh, the whatever you want to call it, the spirit, the the essence of Japanese-ness. Once we made the decision to go to this place, there were already a couple hundred people there. But it was like walking into something that had been planned out in advance because everyone seemed to know what to do. The, those two nights uh, in that gymnasium with a couple hundred other people, uh, seeing everyone... Like you said, uh, just lining up very orderly, quietly, calmly to mm. get whatever food was being handed out, uh, sharing space on the floor. I had gone home to get more blankets, more futons for my family, for my kids, and brought back everything I could handle and ended up having more than we needed. <laughs> so I ended up, because there were, there were people like trying to sleep, sitting in folding chairs. Mm. There were people laying on, you know, pieces of cardboard on the floor. Mm. And I asked them, I said, look, I've got futons. I've got blankets. I'm not using them. Do you want them? And nobody, nobody accepted. Everybody said, no, I'm okay. What's your thoughts on that? Why? I think because that would be taking away from someone else. Mm. And that would be worse than mm. the personal discomfort. Mm. As someone who needs it more. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I ended up sleeping on like three futons piled up. <laughs> it was embarrassing, really. It was strange. But uh, yeah, more more than any other time in Japan. Mm. Uh, that was what showed me what the Japanese people were all about. That extended, as I read on in your book, that extended to the decision to leave that seemed like a very difficult decision because there was a lack of information, a clear information as to what was happening and whether you should stay or go because of the, at this stage, important to say, not because of the earthquake necessarily, but because of the uncertainty surrounding the power plant. Right. And what, what was going on there and whether, cause you were, how far were you from the plant? Like 50 miles. Yep. Pretty close. Much too close. close. Um, there was a, there's a minor mountain range in between. Mm. Uh, but, that's not going to stop yep. radiation and mm. acid rain mm. or purple plumes of whatever coming over. Yeah. Uh, so when we saw something explode on TV, so oh, when I the vision explodes, yeah. it's like, all right, something's going on. It's yeah. not good. Yeah. Uh, but at this point couldn't get gas. Mm. We didn't have enough gas in the car to get very far. Uh, and it's like, what do we do? Trains are out, I guess. Trains no out. trains, no buses, no buses at this point, right? Yeah. So my wife was actually the one who saw our neighbor's car mm. with the license plate from a different area. Like, where are you going? And can you take us with you? This is uh, you, your neighbor, you. Yes. And he took you up to Morioka. Right. Is that correct? Which is his brother Jun's house. Yeah. We... Uh, just for clarification, his name was Yu, Y-U. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> Yu Yanagisawa uh, was living in the same building as us. 
and uh, he was a member of the Fukushima soccer team. My wife pretty much saw his car uh, and he had license plates for uh, Morioka city up further north. And my wife's like, he's leaving. Let's see if we can go with him. My wife had the foresight to grab our passports. Mm. Uh, and we didn't have a plan other than getting in this guy's car and going wherever he was going. He told us as we're getting stuff together, he said, and I will never forget this. He says, you might want to bring some blankets because that meant a, we needed them mm. because we were staying at his brother's place because we probably wouldn't be able to find any other place to stay. B meaning he had already thought what we needed. Mm. Yeah. He had already decided that, okay, I'm going to take these, you know, people to Morioka, but I'm not going to just drop them off. What, what, what's going to happen? He was thinking, what am I going to do for them? He wasn't just giving us a ride. Mm. He was giving us what we needed. Yeah, you, you make a comment in your book, let me read it directly, uh, that in Japan, it is not enough to simply give what is asked for. It is what is needed that matters. That's really yeah. brilliantly put. I'd never thought about that, uh, but I would totally agree with that comment. Yeah. Um, it sums up so much about Japan. It does. It mm. does. We eventually got our stuff together, got in his car, and we drove north and then went to his brother's place. And by this time, it was dark. And then we all sat together in his brother's apartment and they each had a laptop and they started searching for flights for us mm. out of Japan. Uh, because by this time, we, through our conversations with him and with each other, my wife and I decided that let's, let's just get out. Because again, we have no idea what's coming. Mm. So let's just get away figure it out and go from there. They stayed up with us and they searched for flights and plan, helped us plan a route uh, to get ourselves from Morioka around to a local airport, fly down to Tokyo, get to the other airport and fly out back to my uh, hometown. Back to New Jersey. Yeah. And you stayed there relatively brief period of time. You were back within three months or so. Is that? Yeah. Well, my wife, was on a three-month uh, visa, okay. right? Mm -hmm. So we had to come back. We went back to Fukushima to gather up, to mm -hmm. clean out our old apartment. My wife didn't want anyone to go outside mm -hmm. because of radiation. Mm -hmm. We moved back to the States again. We were there for about two years. And then we decided to have our children grow up, at least for a time, in Japan. Mm. One thing that also struck me, Kevin, when reading the book was that you seem to, and from the title of the book, which is A Father's Journey is in the title, you seem to kind of douse yourself through that period of the book that you were kind of performing as you should as a father. Mm -hmm. You strike me as the kind of father who, he, you know, you, you, you're very good at dad stuff. You strike me as that kind of guy. You're the kind of dad who knows. And <sighs> was it a situation because... Nobody knew what to do at the time. Nobody knew what was happening. Nobody knew what the right action was. Mm. Gave you a sense that you were failing? And if so, do, do you feel like you actually failed well, at that time? The earthquake was on a Friday. And I think it was on Monday that the nuclear reactor was exploding. That Seeing that on TV, not far away, mm. and not understanding what that meant no gas in a car, no way to get out of town. Yeah. So if something's happening, there's no escape. Yeah. 
And that's when I felt like I hadn't taken care of my family mm. because I didn't see anything mm. that I could do. I felt helpless. Mm. It was my wife who happened to look outside and saw our neighbor's car run and said, Hey, let's ask him. Let's, mm. let's ask him to get us out of town. That, that was really the, the low point, if mm. you call it that, yeah. of that experience because it showed me that I hadn't prepared my family or myself for a situation that arguably is tough to prepare for. Nobody was prepared for. <laughs> But mm. yeah, I, I, I didn't feel like I was there mm. for my family like I should have been. You still feel like that? Being a parent is a, a series of successes and failures, all right? Some things... We, I'm, I'm just learning that now, actually. Yeah, you know, some things so, work out, some things yeah. don't work out. Um, some days you're happy with your performance, some days you really don't you know, quite meet the mark, right. meet the challenge. Uh, there's a saying in Japan, all right? Parents don't raise the kids. Kids raise the parents. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's... I have found that to be very true. <laughs> uh, and, you know, my kids are into their teenage years. Uh, and, yeah. Um, it's ongoing. It's, <laughs> <laughs> school is always in session. The best that we can do as parents is to say, all right, um, let me see if I can be better. Yeah. Let me see if I can be better yeah. tomorrow. Final question I have in regards to that part of your story. And I'm not trying to be facetious when I say this, but to go back to that comment earlier in your book that you always liked earthquakes. <laughs> do you still like them? I, I guess I still do, mm. but I'm okay if there aren't any, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think, I think I'm okay with them now. <laughs> I mean, when, but yeah, we did have one a few weeks ago in the middle of the night and I, I felt it. I woke up. I felt it. And I, I'm pretty sure I smiled. So, Kevin, I'm conscious that it's Saturday morning and I've imposed myself on your family. Um, as you mentioned, you're three teenage kids and we've got a little bit of noise in the background today. So I think it's a good point for us to wrap up the interview. So I want to say again, thank you for welcoming me into your home. I really enjoyed chatting with you today. And uh, good luck with your ongoing guiding. I believe you're off guiding pretty soon on a is it multi-week tour yeah i'm leaving in a couple of days going to kyushu for a cycling tour the whole time in kyushu uh that's for 10 or 12 days and then i have a walking tour starting in tokyo oh fantastic ending up in, in tokyo uh ending up in kyoto osaka so you're gonna be nice and busy yeah yeah so three and a half weeks i'll be gone on the road Well, good luck with all that, mate. Yeah. And when you're back, let's uh, make sure to catch up. Yeah, thanks for stopping by. It was good to chat. Cheers, Kevin. That's it for today's episode. Another big thank you to Kevin for making time to speak with me and welcoming me into his home. Make sure to check out the show notes for today's episode for relevant links. Kevin's an old school warrior and doesn't have a website of his own at this time. So if you'd like to get in contact with him about guiding, you can do so by messaging me through the Snow Country Stories Japan website, and I'll put you in touch. Or you can also visit the Cycling Japan website. It's very simple, cyclingjapan.jp, to see the cycling tours they offer. And if you want a tour that Kevin is guiding, remember to request him by name. I've also included a link to Kevin's books on Amazon, including the book that we touched on today, for now, After the Quake, A Father's Journey. Thanks to everyone who is listening. If you're enjoying, uh, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. 
You can also follow Snow Country Stories Japan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or head to the website at snowcountrystories.com. My name is Peter Carnell. This has been Snow Country Stories Japan. I'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Until then, it's bye for now. <laughs>